You're listening to Rocky Mountain Cryptids. Deep within the Canadian wilderness lives a massive creature that has been known to bust tree trunks like twigs and throw boulders as if they weighed nothing. Known by many names such as Bigfoot, Yeti, Wildman, the Almas, Yeren, Yowie, and most commonly in North American culture, the Sasquatch. Welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of the podcast. As you can tell, me and Lisa are very excited because today we are going to be talking about probably the most famous cryptid of all, the Sasquatch. Yay! <laughs> are you ready for this? I've been so ready. My hands are shaking. I just want to go right into this. Yes. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, the Sasquatch is a bipedal ape-like creature believed by many to inhabit the forests of North America and perhaps the entire world. (laughs) There have been reported sightings of a creature matching similar descriptions all over the world. Now, for a a very general description of the Sasquatch, um, it can be described as a large, muscular, like I said before, bipedal creature with ape-like qualities ranging from about six to nine feet in height. They're almost always covered in thick hair um, all along their entire body, which can be described as black, dark brown, or even dark reddish brown, kind of like an auburn squatch. <laughs> Some descriptions have the creature standing as tall as even 10 to 15 feet. A pungent, nasty smelling odor is almost, not almost always, but sometimes can be associated with reports of the creatures, commonly described as similar to rotten eggs, putrid, or even a skunk-like smell. That's something I don't want to smell when I'm in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) You smell that? Get out of there. (laughs) I was like, it might just actually be a skunk. (laughs) A little family of skunks. (laughs) Now, the face of a Bigfoot is also described as human-like, with a flat nose and also visible lips, leading many to believe the Sasquatch may indeed be Gigantopithecus, with it was an extinct genus of ape. Mm -hmm. Now, common descriptions also include broad shoulders, no visible neck, and long arms. The eyes are commonly described as dark in color, although they have been alleged in a couple accounts to glow a yellow or red during the night. Thanks to wonder about the reflection. It does, because like uh, that reflective eye shine, we don't have that as humans or most apes don't have that either. But for example, a lot of creatures like owls, raccoons, possums, anything living in the forest has that reflective eyes. So we don't know whether or not the Sasquatch has this, although there have been reports of people claiming that they have glowing eyes or glowing red eyes or sometimes like hypnotic eyes, (laughs) which seems a little extra. (laughs) This reminds me of an encounter where (laughs) this lady was like, I know that um, one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or she said that he's telepathically telling her to mate with her with his red glowing eyes. Okay. (laughs) we've talked about this before and if i don't care if it's a human i don't care if it's a creature if anyone is hypnotically telling you to mate with them run run away that's a red flag right there (laughs) many red flags oh gosh holy cow like 
not to like discredit anyone's story, but we get some of those sometimes. <laughs> actually, you know, it'd be so horrible if this actually all happened and we're like, yeah, <laughs> specific hypnotic Sasquatch is out there, like trying to find love. <laughs> we're just making fun of it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so some footprint casts have also contained claw marks which make it likely that they came from a bear rather than sasquatch because some of these prints also have five toes and claws which most normally are always a bear rather than mm-hmm. a sasquatch because most people will say an actual sasquatch footprint looks more like a giant foot hence the name bigfoot <laughs> rather than like a bear paw which is sometimes more rounded and also, I think it's pretty obvious when it's a bare footprint because it you can almost tell, like, with yeah. the claws. So, getting into the history of the Sasquatch, according to anthropologist David Daigling, the legends existed before there was even, like, a singular unified name for the creature. So... On the Tool River Reservation in California, petroglyphs, which are images created by removing surfaces of rocks, so they're basically rock pictures or rock drawings. So these petroglyphs created by a group of Yakuts, which are an ethnic group of Native Americans who live or lived um, historically to Central California. So before European contact, the Yakuts consisted of up to 60 tribes speaking several different languages which is really interesting. So at this site, there is a petroglyph known to be drawn by the Yakuts at a site called Painted Rock. And some people believe that it's actually a family of Bigfoot (laughs) is depicted in this drawing. It's really interesting. And the local tribes people called the largest glyphs, quote, hairy man, end quote. And they are estimated to be between 500 and 1000 years old. So you have these amazing petroglyphs that consist of what, I guess, if you don't necessarily believe in the Sasquatch, you could consider them a bunch of hairy men. But (laughs) if you, um, I think everyone should, you should Google um, petroglyphs of Sasquatch and they're fascinating. Like they look like these giant hairy creatures. I just think it's interesting because we have petroglyphs of people, but then (laughs) I think it's so interesting that this like certain set of petroglyphs that look more like a furry big creature, they don't really resemble people in my opinion. I guess you you could consider no, them to yeah, be I'm people. I'm looking them up right now. But they look more like giant like apes or like, I guess that's my bias. But like, in my opinion, it looks like these giant hairy like creatures. They don't necessarily look like people. No, especially what they have... Um... The way its eyes are drawn. Yeah. It's really cool. I would recommend everyone look up petroglyphs of Bigfoot because it's really cool. And there's many different versions too. So ecologist Robert Pyle argues that most cultures have accounts of human-like giants in their folk history, expressing a need for, quote, some larger-than-life creature, end quote. Which is interesting because if you think about it, like, I I could understand how, like, a monster or like a creature that's giant might reappear in many different like urban legends, folklores, because I guess it's this idea of something scary or something big or something. Ooh, like why is something so different than us? Let's talk about it. It's a legend. 
So each language has its own name for the creature featured in the local version of such legends. Many names meant something along the lines of, quote, wild man, end quote, or, quote, hairy man, end quote. (laughs) Wild hairy man. (laughs) Wild hairy man. (laughs) Although other names describe common actions that it was said to perform, such as eating clams or shaking trees, which is like really interesting (laughs) and kind of funny. Like I would love if I was a Sasquatch for my name to be tree shaker. (laughs) That literally sounds like a Sasquatch or like a creature that lives in the forest. It doesn't really sound like a person. Like I wouldn't give tree shaker as a title to a person. (laughs) It's just too cool. Like (laughs) maybe like an elephant or another like animal, but like probably not a human. Like humans have to chop trees down. We can't break them. So Members of the Lumi, which are a Native American tribe that speak coastal Salish languages in the Pacific Northwest region of Washington State, which is in the U.S., tell tales about Simaquiz, the local version of Bigfoot. The stories are similar to each other in the general description of Tsimaquiz, but details differ among different families and different, like, groups within this culture and different, like, discussions between the creature's diet activities or even where they spend their time (laughs) which I thought was like cute like perhaps some Sasquatch are believed to hang out by like a certain mountain or hang out like oh you can find that one by the lake like I don't know I thought it was really cute have their favorite areas or little habitats yeah I would totally okay I would if I was a Sasquatch I would take over a cave I would make it my cave and then it would be on a hill so if people ever came near me, I would just throw rocks, but I wouldn't have to throw them. I'd roll them and they'd roll down a hill and then it would just hit the <laughs> hikers and I'd be like, sorry. And they have snacks for later. <laughs> Maybe that's what we mean when we're like walking and we're like, yeah, I look like a snack today. Like <laughs> a hiking snack. <laughs> that's the thing though. Do you think Sasquatch are omnivores they almost have to be with like yes a giant muscle mass like that hey they definitely Um, are but i don't do you think they eat humans (laughs) i feel like that's a campfire story what do you think they could it could be a possibility it kind of reminds me of how bears can eat humans if they're pushed to it but generally don't just add like a thousand times more testosterone and yeah (laughs) an angry wild hairy man gonna come eat you actually yeah i don't know because if you think of it, if it was an apex predator living in the forest deer i can see that though hey i i guess this is also from like a human perspective though like i don't think humans taste good <laughs> like i can't imagine human beings tasting good <laughs> like hmm i just like no. turn into a wendigo <laughs> exactly a wendigo squatch oh <laughs> the crossover <laughs> getting back on topic uh, some regional versions tell of more threatening creatures the stiaha or quiquie were a nocturnal race children were warned to stay away from <laughs> the quiquie lest the monsters hear and carry them off and sometimes people could get killed. <laughs> so oh, eaten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little scary. Um, the Iroquois tell of an aggressive hair-covered giant with rock hard skin known as the Otne Yarhe or stone giant, 
more commonly referred to as the Genosqua. Which is really cool. I like the name Stone Giants. I don't know if you've ever um, read The Hobbit, but in The Hobbit, there's stone giants when like um, the company's crossing the misty mountains. Really? Yeah, they're like stone giants. I like that though. They're called like stone giants for throwing stones at people. (laughs) I think it's because their skin was rock hard, but at the same time, I like the idea of them throwing giant stones better. So maybe it's also that. (laughs) Because, like, that makes sense to me. Like, I feel like if you watch any, like, Sasquatch documentary or, like, Finding Bigfoot, it's like, wait, I hear knocking. A rock toss. It's like, you're here. (laughs) It's kind of scary, actually, if you think about it, though. Because I... If you're looking at these shows from the perspective of you don't believe in a Sasquatch, it's not that scary. But if you consider they're actually out there, that's terrifying. Like not only there's these giant creatures that are very tough and also they're very good at throwing things. So I wouldn't mess with them. Yeah, they could lift probably a giant boulder and knock you out. They could take out a tree out of the ground and rip it at you. Then you're doomed. (laughs) In 1847, Paul Kane reported stories by the natives about Sukums, a race of cannibalistic wild men living on the peak of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington state. Although related to this area was an alleged incident in 1924 in which a violent encounter between a group of miners and a group of ape men occurred, these allegations were reported in July 16, 1924, issue of the Oregonian. That must be our Ape Canyon encounter. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) of the Oregonian and have become a popular piece of Bigfoot lore and the area is now referred to as Ape Canyon. (laughs) Which Lisa will get into later. (laughs) One day. I don't have that one One day. Oh, (laughs) I didn't do the Ape Canyon one. There are so many different places, though, (laughs) that have alleged Bigfoot (laughs) sightings and that are considered, like, Sasquatch (laughs) hotspots. Really, yes. And I want to go to all of them. (laughs) So, what's really interesting is that U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, or as some of you may know him as Teddy, (laughs) um, Teddy. in his 1893 book, The Wilderness Hunter, he writes of a story he was told by an elderly mountain man named Bawman, in which a foul-smelling bipedal creature ransacked his beaver trapping camp, stalked him, and later became hostile when it fatally broke his companion's neck in the wilderness near the Idaho-Montana border. Ooh. So Roosevelt notes that Bauman appeared fearful while telling the story, but attributed the trapper's folkloric German ancestry to have potentially influenced him, which is really interesting. I thought it was crazy that a president was like, yeah, that's a cool story. Let me let me write this down. (laughs) This is important to remember. But what gets me is that about this um, little story is that. Roosevelt he noted that like the person who told him this seemed really scared while he was saying it and what gets me every time is that if you look up encounters with like Sasquatch or Dogman or different things a lot of people seem really scared and like I I don't know or like really genuine and like 
I guess some people are better at lying than others, but like me personally, like when someone's being really genuine, I, I tend to believe them. Yeah, or I like, agree. I'm the same. Or if someone's scared, I tend to believe them because just because something might not be real to you doesn't mean it's not real to that person or like their experience might just because like you don't think something's real doesn't mean that person doesn't think it happened which is really they're the ones who saw it not us yeah and it's one of those things is those people also have to live with encounters which is Mm -hmm. fascinating to me because I would be so mad if I saw something and I genuinely believe genuinely believed I saw it and nobody else believed me that would be so sad like and there's so many people out there that don't tell their encounters because of that like people are just like they think they're Bigfoot experts and you know they just judge them through behind the computer screen it's like you're not out there you haven't seen it well I guess yeah they're trolling in a way (laughs) fake yeah they'll be like fake and like people are scared away by that for being trolled basically which is sad because I mean there's so many encounters not spoken about at all I know right like it makes me wonder though like I wonder how many like crazy weird things have happened in this world but like people have been too afraid to talk about them I'm like probably so many I like want to know more. <laughs> well, like even like the person who saw a platypus for the first time was probably like something weird is out there. Everyone else. Oh, it do- doesn't exist. I don't know. Some duck billed creature. I don't know. It looked at me funny. Like you probably saw eggs. a beaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a beaver. No, it had a bill. <laughs> like this weird little like mammal that's venomous. <laughs> like it shouldn't exist. Yet it does. And no it it leaves you wondering like how many things like we think shouldn't exist but might might be out there i don't know so less menacing versions have also been recorded such as one by reverend elkanah walker from 1840 so walker was a protestant missionary who recorded stories of giants among the natives living near spokane washington these giants were said to live on and around the peaks of nearby mountains and stole salmon from fishermen's nets. (laughs) So in the 1920s, Indian Affairs agent J.W. Burns compiled local stories and published them in a series of Canadian newspaper articles. They were accounts told to him by the Stales people of Chiles and others. The Stalesa peoples and other regional tribes maintained that the creatures were real and that they were offended by people telling them that the figures were legendary. According to Stales' accounts, the creatures preferred to avoid white men and spoke the Lelutate language of the people at Port Douglas, British Columbia, and at the head of Harrison Lake. These accounts Harrison. were published. <laughs> yes. These accounts were published again in 1940. And Burns borrowed the term Sasquatch from the Haukamelem and used it in his articles to describe the hypothetical single type of creature portrayed in the local stories. Hmm. It's very interesting. I, I, I thought it was, I, I thought it was really cool that within this cultural belief, um, the Sasquatch spoke the Luluate language of the people at Port Douglas. And I, I was like, that's really cool. Could you imagine though, like sharing a language with a Sasquatch and be like <laughs> trading, bartering, being like, <laughs> okay, okay. What are you going to give us in exchange for these salmon? They're like, hmm. 
<laughs> oh no, we have like all of these trees. <laughs> we cut down for you. Okay, let's make a trade. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's very interesting because um, like with Sasquatch vocal recordings and such, like a lot of people do and a lot of witnesses and the recordings are what they would call samurai chatter. And it would almost sound like um, indigenous chatter really fast, or I guess more like in the Asian kind of culture, fast chatter, what I guess where it comes from samurai, but. That's really interesting though. Like I, I kind of love the idea of like years and years ago, like different cultures working with different tribes of Sasquatch. It's beautiful. <laughs> they work together, not against each other. <laughs> it is interesting though. Like as like the world became more um, globalized as people like moved around more and more and like colonized different places. Like I, like I wouldn't be surprised if like cryptids slowly disappeared as like people moved in because like, I wouldn't want to be around a lot of people. I would slowly retreat into the forest, like slowly move away from the biggest threat there is, which is like more people like, deforestation all of these things oh, like true like I wouldn't be surprised if like a like advanced intelligent group of like Sasquatch living in the forests like would slowly slowly like survive by like secluding themselves over the years but who's to say they haven't already because I mean sightings I mean either you're it can go both ways sightings aren't as seen anymore because they probably move more in inland and more towards into the forests or there could be where, you know, all the um, deforestation that you're actually seeing more sightings because oh. they're getting more used to people and coming that way. Yeah. So I guess kind of like how bears, ways. yeah. Like how and then bears like, oh. slowly have adapted to eating people food. Right? And, and so then like, like bears are the problem. Let's kill them. You know, they came like, in and no. they're eating my garbage. <laughs> well, yeah, because you're leaving it there. So in 1958, Jerry Crew, a logging company bulldozer operator in Humboldt, California, discovered a set of large 16-inch human-like footprints sunk deep within the mud in the Six Rivers National Forest. Upon informing his co-workers, Crew made many claims to have seen similar tracks on previous job sites as well as telling of odd incidents such as an oil drum weighing 450 pounds or 200 kilograms having been moved without explanation that's a lot of weight <laughs> yeah that's a big barrel like a normal person couldn't move that <laughs> no the logging company men soon began to utilize the term bigfoot to describe the mysterious culprit who had left many footprints had been moving their equipment and caused a sense of paranoia among the workers crew who initially believed someone was playing a prank on them once again looked at all of this evidence and the numerous massive footprints and he ended up contacting reporter Andrew Ginzali of the Humboldt Times newspaper. Ginzali interviewed lumber workers and wrote articles about the mysterious footprints coining the term Bigfoot in relation to the tracks and the local tales of a large hairy wild man. So a plaster cast was made of the footprints and crew appeared holding one of the casts on the front page of this newspaper in October 6, 1958. 
The story spread rapidly as Gonzali began to receive correspondence from many major media outlets, such as like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. Many people were very interested about this. <laughs> this is also a time it began spreading <laughs> like a virus. Everybody was pro Sasquatch, not pro Sasquatch. <laughs> Everyone was excited. Everyone has squatch fever. Everyone was ready to get down with Bigfoot. <laughs> so as a result, the term Bigfoot became widespread as a reference to an apparently large unknown creature leaving massive footprints in North America or Northern California. In 2002, a family of crew's deceased co-worker Ray Wallace claimed that their father had been secretly making the large footprints with carved wooden feet and that he was responsible for the tracks. Despite the Wallace's family claim, Willow Creek and Humboldt County are considered by some to be the Bigfoot capital of the world. <laughs> Isn't that... I, I love when like anything fun happens at, to a certain place like point pleasant with mothman i'm like yes <laughs> let's have something fun let's have something weird let's talk about it <laughs> i think a lot of places thrive on culture and legends and lore being a part of like not only like the fun they have in their community but like getting more tourists tourist Definitely. attention money woohoo actually and, and we will go <laughs> <laughs> i wonder like how much money has been made off some of these places like Willow Creek, different places in Washington. Like, so that's about everything I have for history. I enjoyed that very much. <laughs> I feel like that gave us a good description and history of Sasquatch, our pal. Let's start with our most famous Sasquatch, Patty. Oh, was that his name? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I remember watching the Patterson Gimlin film when I was young. And for me, this solidified my cryptid obsession. Like, I mean, <laughs> obsession. And for those of you who don't know this video, I definitely recommend you look it up. It was filmed in 1967 by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. And it is the face of Sasquatch you see around on things today. The video shows a female Sasquatch, now named Patty, walking in the creek bed and looking over her shoulder at the two cowboys. Many tried to debunk it, but in reality, it is the one piece of solid footage that the cryptid world has. Now, Elizabeth, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'd love for you. I sent you a link there if you'd like to look at this yes, video. I am so excited to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, it's one of those things that's always going to be slightly magical. You can't go anywhere else and like Google like skunk ape or you can't really Google like a Wendigo and be like, I want to watch a Wendigo like walk around like you can't <laughs> Google like Nessie swimming about like you can watch there's a 24 hour <laughs> Nessie cam you can watch but this is one of those things that's like <laughs> a lot of people can't even mess with it like the no. Patterson Gimlin footage like people have tried to debunk it but they can't really explain like they can't exactly say it's a person in a suit because wouldn't it look slightly different if it was in a suit and also well, even like look at her arms her arms are way longer than a human's would be oh yeah the muscles so, on the back that you can really see the muscle definition I, it's just the most iconic look back ever it's like huh oh, <laughs> well goodness. i've got the encounter here to tell you about that look back too 
It it's almost magical. doesn't seem real though, you know? It's one of those things, it, it doesn't seem real because it's so interesting. It's just fascinating. So I'll get into the encounter here. And this encounter was told by Bob Gimlin. Roger showed Bob one day a big footprint cast and asked Bob to take him in to Northern California on Labor Day weekend where they found all these types of tracks down there. So they went down and the two men mounted up and headed deep into the woods on old logging roads. The leaves were all changing, Bob recalled. We were just riding up there. Roger was taking pictures of me on the horse and leading the pack horse. That's when Roger's horse just started jumping and lunging. Then Bob saw what was spooking the horse. There was a Bigfoot standing there just on the other side of the creek from us, but it was just immediately turned and started walking away. Well, Roger by then had got his camera out of his saddlebag on his horse and he was up running across the creek there. He hit the other side of the bank and stumbled and kind of fell down on his elbows. And that's when it made the famous head turn is when I stepped down off the horse, he said. Gimlin remounted and followed it on horseback, keeping his distance until it disappeared around a bend in the road, 300 yards away. Patterson called him back at that point, feeling vulnerable on foot without a rifle because he feared the creature's mate might approach. The entire encounter had lasted less than two minutes. Next, Gimlin and Patterson rounded up Patterson's horses, which had run off in the opposite direction downstream before the filming began. Patterson got a second roll of film from his saddlebag and filmed the tracks, and then the men tracked Patty for either one mile or three miles, but lost it in heavy undergrowth. They went to their campsite three miles south, picked up plaster, returned to the initial site, measured the um, creature step length and made two plaster casts, one each of the best quality right and left prints. Now, actually, these casts um, have been recasted over and over again. You can actually buy them down in like sou- souvenir shops and such, too. I've yes, been meaning to pick I one, one up. I should have picked one up in Harrison when I had the chance. Oh, yeah. But... It's very interesting to actually see the cat. Well, it was a cast of the casts, but. (laughs) What year was this again? That's kind of fabulous, though. Like a 60s camera. Like, it's crazy. It kind of makes you think, though, like, why hasn't anyone else, like, gotten as iconic, as, like, good as a film? It's, like, one of those things that's, like, magical. Like, it's a once in a lifetime. (laughs) It's like a a comet. literally yeah it was really once in a lifetime (laughs) there's a few other videos out there we can probably go into further this one's definitely the most iconic of all of them if you could choose a cryptid to see in the wild you can't film it and you'll never see it again which one do you pick wait what happens if this cryptid's really dangerous like i would love to see a dog man but at the same time i don't want to see a dog man (laughs) (laughs) because that would be like not good ending for me like that's oh. something I don't want to hunt for <laughs> anything can happen <laughs> yeah no uh <laughs> I would like Sasquatch on the safer side of things but I'd like to see it again oh, then again Mothman would be kind of cool Mothman Mothman <laughs> Moth what about Dan. you oh definitely Nessie <laughs> yeah it's the safest option and also the coolest I'm like let's go for the more dangerous side of I like to live on like Nessie's gonna jump out of the water and eat me although that would be amazing I'd accept that <laughs> so our next historic ca- encounter of Bigfoot is by none other Canadian explorer David Thompson now Elizabeth you may recall our Nordic trip that road we took is actually called the David Thompson highway and really another Bigfoot hotspot 
we didn't see any while we were hiking around that part. No. <laughs> In 1811, David Thompson noted in his daily journal, January 7th, 1811, continuing our journey in the afternoon, we came on the track of a very large animal, the snow about six inches deep on the ice. I measured it four large toes, each of four inches in length. To each a short claw, the ball of a foot sunk three inches lower than the toes. The hinder part of the foot did not mark well, the length 14 inches by eight inches in breadth. Walking from north to south, and having passed about six hours, we were in no humor to follow him, habit to be a young mammoth, and it held to be the track of a large old grizzly bear. Yet the shortness of the nails, the ball of the foot, and its great size was not that of a bear, otherwise that of a very large old bear, his claws worn away. Later, Thompson added, I now recur to what I have already noticed in the early part of last winter when proceeding up the Athabasca River to cross the mountains in company with men and four hunters. One, on one of the channels of the river, we came to the track of a large animal. We had no time for it, and the hunters, eager as they were to follow and shoot every animal, made no attempt to follow this beast. For what could the balls of our fowling guns do against such an animal? Report from old times had made the head branches of this river and the mountains in the vicinity of the abroad of one or more very large animals to which I never appeared to give credence. For these reports appear to arise from the fondness of the marvelous so common to mankind, but the sight of the track of that large beast staggered me, and I often thought of it, yet never could bring myself to believe such an animal existed, but thought it might be the track of some monster bear. And this is like, a lot of people think that this was a footprint of Sasquatch instead of a bear. But back then they couldn't really be like, oh, it's a Sasquatch because they don't know what it is like but it's the a very old bear <laughs> very yeah big bear. very big old bear walking on two feet <laughs> that's interesting though that like it was suggested that there's still claws yeah so I wonder like what's anyway I thought I'd throw that one in there because that was definitely a historic encounter that people have said about David Thompson and Sasquatch who are known in that area do you think the Sasquatch has claws like on their feet Maybe if, he, like, maybe if he has probably, like really long toenails. Huh? Ew. Like, huh? Yeah, and I never thought of, of that. I never thought of it, but I never looked into that. So it's <laughs> something to look into. So my last encounter tonight is about Albert Austin, a Canadian prospector who reported that he was abducted by a Sasquatch and held captive for six days. Oh, wow. He stated that the event took place near Toba Inlet, British Columbia in 1924. And this is going to be a little bit of a long encounter, so... Definitely want to sit back and relax and get ready for this. Um, <laughs> as told by Albert Ostman to John Green, who was a Canadian journalist and leading researcher of the Bigfoot phenomenon, we will talk more about John Green at a later date as he had a huge impact on this Bigfoot community. Yas. <laughs> so this is the interview between the two. I have always followed logging and construction work. This time I had worked over one year on a construction job and thought a good vacation was in order, BC is famous for lost gold mines. One is supposed to be at the head of Toba Inlet. Why not look for this mine and have a vacation at the same time? I took to the Union steamship boat to Lund, BC. From there, I hired an old Native American to take me to the head of Toba Inlet. This old Native American was a very talkative old gentleman. He told me stories about gold brought out by white man from this lost mine. 
This white man was a very heavy drinker, spent his money freely in saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He would be away a few days, then come back with a bag of gold. But one time he went to his mine and never came back. Some people said a Sasquatch had killed him. At the time, I had never heard of Sasquatch, so I asked what kind of animal he had called a Sasquatch. The Native Americans said they have hair all over their bodies, but they are not the animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. I told the Native American I didn't believe in the old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some thousands of years ago, but not nowadays. He replied, there may be, not be many, but they still exist. We arrive at the head of the inlet at about 4 p.m. I made camp at the mouth of a creek. The Native American had supper with me and I told him to look out for me in about three weeks. I would be camping at the same spot when I came back. Next morning, I took my rifle with me but left my equipment at the camp. I decided to look around for some deer trail to lead me up into the mountains. On the way up to the inlet, I had seen a pass in the mountain that I wanted to go through to see what was on the other side. I spent most of the forenoon looking for a trail, but found none, except for a hog's back running down to the beach. So I swamped out a trail from there, got back to my camp about 3 p.m. and that afternoon and made my pack to be ready in the morning. My equipment consisted of one 30-30 Winchester rifle. I had a special homemade prospecting pick axe on one end, pick on the other. I had a leather case for this pick, which fastened to my belt, also my sheath knife. The storekeeper at Lund was cooperative. He gave me some cans of, for my sugar, salt, and matches to keep them dry. My grub consisted mostly of canned stuff, except for a side of bacon, a bag of beans, four pounds of prunes, six packages of macaroni, cheese, three pounds of pancake flour, and six packages of rye king hardtack, three rolls of snuff, and one quart seal of butter, and two pound, pound cans of milk. I had two boxes of shells for my rifle. This guy's ready. <laughs> like, He's ready to go. I love it. The storekeeper gave me a biscuit tin. I put a few things in that and cashed it under a windfall. So I would have it when I came back here waiting for a boat to bring me out. My sleeping bag, I rolled up and tied on top of my pack sack together with my ground sheet, small frying pan and one aluminum pot that held about a gallon. As my canned food was used, I would get plenty of empty cans to cook with. The following morning, I had an early breakfast, made up my pack, and started up th this hawk's back. My pack must have been at least 80 pounds besides my rifle. After one hour, I had to rest. I kept resting and climbing all morning. About 2 p.m., I came to a flat place below a rock bluff. There was a bunch of willow in one place. I made a wooden spade and started digging for water. About a foot down, I got seepings of water, so I decided to camp here for the night and scout about the best way to get from here. I must have been up to near a thousand feet. There was the most beautiful view over the islands and the strait, tugboats with log booms and fishing boats in all directions, a lovely spot. I spent the following day prospecting around, but no signs of minerals. I found a deer trail leading towards this pass that I had seen on my way up the inlet. The following morning, I started out early while it was cool. It was steep climbing with my heavy pack. After a three hour climb, I was tired and stopped to rest. On the other side of the ravine where I was resting was a yellow spot below some small trees. I moved over there and started digging for water. I found a small spring and made a small trough from cedar bark and got a small amount of water, had my lunch and rested here till evening. I made it over the pass late that night. Now I had 
downhill and good going, but I was hungry and tired. So I camped at the first branch of trees I came to. I was trying to size up the terrain, what direction I would take from here. Towards west would lead a low land and some other inlet. So I decided to go to a northeast direction. Had a good going and slight downhill a day. I might have made 10 miles when I came to a small spring and big black hemlock tree. This was a lovely campsite. I spent two days here resting and prospecting. The first night here, I shot a small deer. Two days later, I found an exceptionally good campsite. It was a two good sized cypress trees growing close together and near a rock wall with a nice spring. Just below these trees, I intended to make this my permanent camp. I cut lots of brush for my bed between these trees. I rigged up a pole from the rock wall to hang my pack sack on and I arranged some flat rocks for my fireplace for cooking. I had a really classy setup and that is when things began to happen. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I am a heavy sleeper. Not much disturbs me after I go to sleep, especially on a good bed like I had now. Next morning, I noticed things had been disturbed during the night, but nothing missing. I could see I roasted my grouse on a stick for breakfast. That night, I filled up the magazine of my rifle. I had one box of 20 shells and six shells in my coat pocket. That night, I laid my rifle under the edge of my sleeping bag. I thought a porcupine had visited me the night before and corkies like leather, so I put my shoes in the bottom of the sleeping bag. <laughs> I didn't know that. Porcupines will eat leather? Yeah, apparently they like leather. Oh, they're fashionable. <laughs> Next morning, my pack sack had been emptied out. Someone had turned the sack upside down. It was still hanging on the pole from the shoulder straps as I had hung it up. Then I noticed one half pound package of prunes was missing. Also, my pancake flour was missing, but my salt bag was not touched. Porkies always look for salt. So I decided it must be something else than porkies. I looked for tracks, but found none. I did not think it was a bear. They always tear up and make such a mess of things. I kept close to camp these days in case the visitor would come back. I climbed up on a rock where I had a good view of the camp, but nothing showed up. I was hoping it would be a porky so I can get a good porky stew. These visits had now been going on for three nights. This night it was cloudy and looked like it might rain. I took special notice of how everything was arranged. I closed my pack sack. I did not undress. I only took off my shoes and put them in the bottom of my sleeping bag. I drove my prospecting pick into one of the cypress trees so I could reach it from my bed. I also put the rifle alongside me, inside my sleeping bag. I fully intended to stay awake all night to find out who my visitor was, but I must have fallen asleep. I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep, and at first I did not remember where I was. As I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on the prospecting trip and my, in my sleeping bag. My first thought was, it must be a snow slide but there was no snow around my camp. Then it felt like I, tossed, I was tossed on horseback, but I could feel whoever it was, was walking. I tried to reason out what kind of animal this could be. I tried to get at my sheath knife and cut my way out, but I was in an almost sitting position and the knife was under me. I could not get hold of it, but the rifle was in front of me. I had a good hold of that and I had no intention to let go of it. At times I could feel my pack sack touching me and could feel the cans in the sack touching my back. After what seemed like an hour, I could feel we were going up a steep hill. I could feel myself rise for every step. What was carrying me was breathing hard and sometimes gave a slight cough. Now I knew this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Native American had told me about. I was in a very uncomfortable position, unable to move. I was sitting on my feet and 
one of the boots in the bottom of the bag was crossways with the hobsnail sole side up across my foot. It, it hurt me terribly, but I could not move. It was very hot inside. I was lucky for this fellow's hand was not big enough to close up on the whole bag when he picked me up. There was a small opening at the top. Otherwise, I would have choked to death. Now he was going downhill. I could feel myself touching the ground at times. And at one time, he dragged me behind him and I could feel he was below me. Then he seemed to get on the level ground and was going for it at a trot. By this time, I had cramps in my legs and pain was terrible. I was wishing he would get to his destination soon. I could not stand this type of transportation much longer. <laughs> now he was going uphill again. It did not hurt me so bad. I tried to estimate distance and directions. As near as I could guess, we were about three hours of traveling. I had no idea that when he started though, as I was asleep when he picked me up. Finally, he stopped and let me down. Then he dropped my pack sack. I could hear the cans rattle. Then I heard chatter, some kind of talk I didn't understand. The ground was sloping, so when he let go of my sleeping bag, I rolled downhill. I got my head out in some air. I tried to straighten my legs and crawl out, but my legs were numb. It was still dark. I could not see what my captors looked like. I tried to massage my legs to get some life in them and get my shoes on. I could hear now it was at least four of them. Hmm. They were standing around me and continuously chattering. I had never heard of Sasquatch before. The Native American had told me about them, but I knew I was right among them. But how could to get away from them? That was another question. I got to see the outline of them now as it began to get lighter. The sky was cloudy and it looked like rain. In fact, there was a light sprinkle. I now had circulation in my legs, but my left foot was very sore on top where it had been resting on my hobsnail boots. I got my boots out from the sleeping bag and tried to stand up. I found that I was wobbly on my feet, but I had a good hold of my rifle. I asked, what you fellows want with me? Only some more chatter. It was getting lighter now and I could see them quite clearly. I could make out forms of four people, two big and two little ones. They were all covered in hair and no clothes at all. I could now make out mountains all around me. I looked at my watch. It was 425 AM. It was getting lighter now and I could see the people clearly. They looked like a family, old man, old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem too pleased about what the old man dragged home. I had my compass and my prospecting glass on strings around my neck, the compass in my left hand shirt pocket and glass in my right hand pocket. I tried to reason our location and where I was. I could see now that it was in a small valley or basin about 10, about eight to 10 acres surrounding by high mountains, southeast side where there was a V-shaped opening about eight feet wide at the bottom and about 20 feet high at the highest point. That must have been the way I came in, but how will I get out? The old man was now sitting near the opening. I moved my belongings up close to the west wall. There were two small cypress trees there, and this will do for a shelter for the time being, until I find out what these people want from me and how to get away from them. I <laughs> emptied out my pack sack to see what I had left in the line of food. All my canned meat and vegetables were intact, and I had one can of coffee, also three small cans of milk two packages of Rye King hardtack and my butter sealer half full of butter, mm. but my prunes and macaroni were missing. <gasps> also, Rude. my full box of shells for my rifle. I had my sheath knife, but my prospecting pick was missing and my cans of matches. I only had my safety box full and held about a dozen matches. That did not worry me. I could always start a fire with my prospecting glass when the sun was shining, if I got dry wood. I wanted hot coffee, but I had no wood. Also, 
Nothing around here that looked like wood. I had a good look over the valley from where I was, but the boy and girl were always watching me from behind some juniper bush. I decided there must be some water around here. The ground was leaning towards the opening in the wall. There must be water at the upper end of the valley. There is green grass and moss along the bottom. All my utensils were left behind. I opened my coffee tin and emptied out a coffee in a dish towel and, and tied it with a metal strip from the can. I took my rifle and can and went looking around for water. Right at the head under a cliff, there was a lovely spring that disappeared underground. I got a drink and a full can of water. And when I got back, the young boy was looking over my belongings, but did not touch anything. On my way back, I noticed that these people were sleeping. On the east side wall of this valley was a shelf in the mountainside with overhanging rock, looking something like a big undercut in a big tree about 10 feet deep and 30 feet wide. The floor was covered with lots of dry moss and they had some kind of blankets woven of narrow strips of cedar bark packed with dry moss. They looked very practical and warm with no need of washing. The first day, not much happened. I had to have my food cold. The young fellow was coming near me and seemed curious about me. My one snuff box was empty, so I tossed it towards him. When he saw it coming, he sprang up and quick as a cat grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it. They spent a long time playing with it. Then he trotted over to the old man and showed him and they had a long chatter. Next morning, I made up my mind to leave this place. If I had to shoot my way out, I could not stay much longer. I had only Jeez. enough grub <laughs> to last me till I got to Toba Inlet. I did not know the direction, but I would go downhill and I could come out near civilization someplace. I rolled up my sleeping bag and put it that in the inside of my pack sack packed the few cans I had, swung the sack on my pack, injected the shell in my barrel of my rifle, and started for the opening in the wall. The old man got up, held his hands as though he would push me back. I pointed to the opening. I wanted to go out, but he stood there pushing towards me and said something close to sounded like soccer, soccer. I backed up about 60 feet. I did not want to be too close. I thought if I had to shoot my way out, a 30-30 might not have much effect on this fellow. It might make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way of killing him in order to get out of here. I went back to my campsite to figure out some other way out. I could make friends with the young fellow or the girl. They might help me if I could only talk to them. Then I thought of a fellow who saved himself from a mad bull by blinding him with snuff in the eyes. But how will I get near enough to get this fellow to put snuff in his eyes? So I decided next time I give the young fellow my snuff box to leave a few grains of snuff in it. He might make the old man get a taste of it. Is snuff tobacco? Yeah. Okay, I assume so. <laughs> I was like, I want to double check. <laughs> but the question is, what direction will I go if I should get out? I must have been near 25 miles northeast of Toba Inlet where I was kidnapped. This fellow must have traveled at least 25 miles in three hours he carried me. If we went west, we would have been near saltwater. Same thing if we went south. Therefore, he must have gone northeast. If I had kept going south and over two mountains, I might hit saltwater someplace between London and Vancouver. The following day, I did not see the old lady till about 4 p.m. She came home with her arms full of grass and twigs and all kinds of spruce and hemlock, as well as some kinds of nut that were growing in the ground. I had seen a lot of them in Vancouver Island. The young fellow went up to the mountain on the east every day. He could climb better than a mountain goat. He picked some kind of grass with long, sweet roots. He gave me some one day. They tasted very sweet. I gave him another snuff box, about a teaspoon of snuff in it. He tasted it and then went to the old man. He licked it with his tongue and they had a long chat. 
I made a dipper from a milk can. I made many dippers. You can use them for pots too. You just cut two slits near the top of any can and then cut a limb from any small tree. Cut down the back of the limb down the stem on the tree and then taper the part you cut from the stem. Then cut a hole in the tapered part. Slide the tapered part in the slit you have made in the can and you have a good handle on your can. That's great. I'm going to learn how to do this. <laughs> I threw one over to the young fellow that was playing near my camp and he picked it up and looked at it. And then he went to the old man and showed it to him. They had a longer chatter and they came to me, pointed at the dipper and then at his sister. I could see that he wanted one for her too. I had other peas and carrots. So I made one for his sister and he was standing only eight feet away from me when I had made the dipper. I dipped it in water and drank from it. He was very pleased, almost smiled at me. Then I took a chew of snuff and smacked my lips and said, that's good. <laughs> the young fellow pointed at the old man and said something that sounded like, ook. I got the idea that the old man liked snuff and the young fellow wanted a box for the old man. I shook my head. I motioned with my hands for the old man to come to me. I did not think the young fellow understood what I meant. He went to his sister and gave her the dipper I made for her. They did not come near me again that day. I had now been here six days, but I was sure I was making progress. If only I can get the old man to come over to me and get him to eat a full box of snuff, that would kill <laughs> him for sure, and I wouldn't be guilty of murder. <sighs> the old lady was a meek old thing. The young fellow was, by his time, quite friendly. The girl could not hurt anyone. Her chest was flat like a boy's, no development like young ladies. I am sure if I can get the old man out of the way, I could easily have brought this girl out with me to civilization. But what good would that have been? I would have to keep her in a cage for public display. I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on other people, and I don't think they would like that. The noise and racket in a modern city, they would not like any more than I do. The young fellow might have been between 11 to 18 years old and about seven feet tall and might weigh about 300 pounds. His chest would be 50 to 55 inches, his waist about 36, 38. He had wide jaw, narrow forehead, and slanted upward round at the back, about four or five inches higher than the forehead. The hair on the heads were about six inches long. The hair on the rest of the body was short and thick in places. The woman's hair on the forehead had an upward turn, like some women have. They call it bangs among the woman's hairdos. The old lady could have been anything between 40 to 70 years old. She was over seven feet tall, and she would be about 500 to 600 pounds. Dang. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not <laughs> built for beauty or speed. Some of those lovable brassieres and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and her figure. The man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusks. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest, and big hump on his back, powerful shoulders. His biceps on upper arms were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well proportioned. His hands were wide. The palm was long and broad and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place they had no hair was the inside of their hands and the soles of their feet and upper parts of the nose and eyelids. I never did see their ears. They were covered with hair hanging over them. 
If the old man were to wear a collar, it would have been at least 30 inches. I have no idea what size shoes they would need. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day when he was sitting down. The soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot, and the big toe was longer than the rest and very strong. In mountain climbing, all he needed was footing for his big toe. They were very agile. To sit down, they turned their knees out and came straight down. To rise, they came straight up with any, without any help of hands or arms. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they moved from place to place as food is available in different locations. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat meat or do any cooking. I think this is probably a stopover place and the plants with sweet roots on the mountainside might have been in season this time of year. They seem to be most interested in them. The roots have a very sweet and satisfying taste. They always seem to do everything for a reason, wasted no time on anything they did not need. When they were not looking for food, the old man and old lady were resting, but the boy and the girl were always climbing something or some other exercise. A favorite position was to take hold of his feet and his hands and balance on his rump, then bounce forward. The idea seemed to be as how far could he go without his feet or hands touching the ground. Sometimes he made it 20 feet. <laughs> <laughs> but what did they want with me? They must understand I cannot stay here indefinitely. I will soon have to make a break for freedom, not that I was mistreated in any way. One consolation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff, watching me when I took a pinch of the snuff. He seemed to think it was useless to only put it inside my lips. One morning after I had breakfast, both the old man and the boy came and sat down only 10 feet away from me. This morning I made coffee. I have saved up all the dry branches I found and had some dry moss and used all the labels from cans to start a fire. I love how he's going for coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I got my coffee pot boiling and it was strong coffee too. And the aroma from boiling coffee was what brought them over. I was sitting eating hard tack with plenty of butter on and sipping coffee and it sure tasted good. I was smacking my lips pretending it was better than it really was. I set the can down and that was about half full. I intended to warm it up later. I pulled out a full box of snuff, took a big chew. Before I had time to close the box, the old man reached for it. I was afraid he would have wasted it and had only two more boxes. So I held onto the box intending him to take a pinch like I had done. Instead, he grabbed the box and emptied it in his mouth, swallowing it in one gulp. Then he licked the box inside with his tongue. After a few minutes, his eyes began to roll over in his head. He was looking straight up. I could see he was sick. Then he grabbed my coffee can that was quite cold by this time and emptied that in his mouth, grounds and all. That did no good. He stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a stuck pig. I grabbed my rifle. I said to myself, this is it. If it comes for me, I will shoot him plump between the eyes. But he started for the spring. He wanted water. I packed my sleeping bag and my pack sack with a few cans I had left. The young fellow ran over to his mother. She then began to squeal. I started for the opening in the wall and I just made it. The old lady was right behind me. I fired one shot at the rock over her head. I guess she had never seen a rifle fired before. She turned and ran inside the wall. I injected another shell in the barrel of my rifle and started downhill looking back over my shoulder every so often to see if they were coming. I was in a canyon and good traveling and I made fast time. Must have been three miles in some world record time. I came to a turn in the canyon and I had the sun on my left. That meant I was going south and the canyon turned west. I decided to climb the ridge ahead of me. I knew that I must have two mountain ridges between me and the salt water, and climbing this ridge, I could have a good view of this canyon so I could see all the Sasquatch that were coming after me. 
I had a light pack and was making good time up this hill. I stopped soon after to look back. I came from, but no one was following me. As I came over the ridge, I could see Mount Baker. Then I knew I was going in the right direction. I was hungry and tired. I opened my pack sack to see what I could eat. I decided to rest here for a while. I had a good view of the mountainside and the old man was coming. I had advantage because I was above him. To get me, he would have to come up a steep hill and that might not be so easy after stopping a few 30-30 bullets. I had made my mind up that this was my last chance and this would be my fight to the finish. I rested here for two hours. It was 3 p.m. when I started down the mountainside. It was nice going, not too steep and not too much underbrush. When I got near the bottom, I shot a blue grouse. She was sitting on a windfall looking right at me, only 100 feet away. I shot her neck right off. I made it down. <laughs> oh my God, that was... <laughs> I guess so. I made it down the creek at the bottom of this canyon. I felt I was safe now. I made a fire between two big boulders, roasting the grouse. Next morning when I woke up, I was feeling terrible. My feet were sore from dirty socks. My legs were sore. My stomach was upset from that grouse that I ate the night before. I was not too sure I was going to make it up that mountain. I finally made the top, but it took me six hours to get there. It was cloudy, visibly about a mile. I knew I had to go downhill after about two hours. I got down to the heavy timber and sat down to rest. I can hear a motor running hard at times, then stop. I listened to this for a while and decided the sound was from Gaz Donkey. Somebody was logging in the neighborhood. Oh. I told them I was a prospector and was lost. I did not tell them I had been kidnapped by a Sasquatch, as if I had told them they would probably have said he was crazy too. The following day, I went down from this camp on Salmon Arm Branch from there, I got to the Union boat back to Vancouver. That was my last prospecting trip and my only experience what was known as Sasquatches. I know that in 1924, there were four Sasquatch living. It might be only two now. The old man and old lady might be dead by this time. Oh, and wow. that was the story of Albert Ostman. That's crazy. It's so detailed. Like, because it almost seems too well-written to be real. Does that make I think sense? when he told John Green that over time this has been oh this is like know, a finished piece yeah almost. I think so because like I've looked into the um different like it didn't go as detailed in as this one did but I think John Green pushed for a lot more detail okay here's the thing like I can see a Sasquatch kidnapping him but at the same time like what was what was he doing with him why did he bring him there and also like this wasn't a big media outlet so why would you make it up yeah, that that's that's another point to add to. Hey, like, like if he didn't the, want to tell anybody, like, yeah, know. like what was the reason for it? It's interesting. Hey, yeah, there's a lot of different perspectives on this one because it almost seemed too like it seems like a movie. Like it seems like it plays like a movie. Like he's captured, he has to fight his way out. Mm -hmm. But it's also one of those things, though, when you retell a story, it slowly becomes like that, though. Like when you retell a story that's happened to you like over and over again, it slowly becomes like fiction in a way. But like, that's interesting, because if it actually happened, that's one hell of a story. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's crazy. But I don't know, like, it's hard because it'd be so easy to make up a story. Mm -hmm. but at the same time it was so, so why detailed. would you make it up at the same time too like why yeah. would you if you're not going to report it to the newspapers yeah but I guess like, any 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 encounter could be as detailed as you want it to be it depends how much you just want to talk about it 
Yeah. So I found like he, Albert, he seems to like really talk about where he's going. So maybe that's hmm. something like where people can go and try to find. I wonder if anybody's ever gone out and tried to find this spot. They should. Cause that's interesting. I love that. It's kind of like a hidden little place, mm-hmm. a secret, <laughs> a little secret. What do you think on it? Are you on edge about it? It's well, so or? weird. Cause a part of me thinks it's too interesting to be real if that makes sense yeah usually real life is a lot more boring than like (laughs) any story but at the same time I want to believe you know like I want to believe this person because it seems crazy like and if it did happen that's so weird like it also like you said it's 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 detailed about certain things that like like the food and everything like like if it was made up it's not far from the truth then but if it isn't like if it's real that's crazy and I also find too that I was thinking with um with if he's not knowing much about Sasquatch he really described them really well yeah (laughs) especially like the toe I never even thought about that the toe being longer to balance on to climb these mountainsides I've never even thought of that if it isn't true it's a very good lie because of how detailed it is and that's what makes me suspicious of it is the amount of detail but like you said like it's been written like he had help like it's kind of a mystery to me hey yeah like (laughs) I want to believe it's real but at the same time it's like too cool to be real real almost you know like I can't (laughs) imagine a Sasquatch capturing someone other than like no one a long time like Sasquatch have been capturing like Native American women huh if we're considering this as a real encounter and it actually happened, like, it seems like they were just curious and they're like, who is this person? I want to know more about you. Come hang out with us. I feel like Sasquatch is a very curious type of creature. Cause I know there have been a lot of encounters with little kids where little kids have gone about little kids, Ah, which makes more sense to me because like, if this has happened, this happens with like animals in the wild, like, Um, I'm not sure if it's more of a maternal instinct, but like some like male animals will do it too, but like adopt species young that aren't necessarily their own Mm -hmm. because it's common. Like, I don't know. I think there's just something within animals, humans, like that caring, nurturing aspect where like, it's something little, like it's young, like it's vulnerable. It needs help. And I'm not surprised that like, there are accounts of like kids going into the forest, going lost, and then reappearing and say they they were with a hairy man. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like <laughs> it's just it's fascinating. Like I I want to believe it's true, but also it's just so weird. It's like a crazy like story that happens in a movie, you know? Like you get abducted by the Sasquatch. Like I want a movie of this. Like I would totally watch that. Like <laughs> I like think there might pl- be something out there like it plays like a movie like and this epic escape like this entire story like it's very infamous I guess not infamous like famous like I don't know it's definitely one like like I said before it's one heck of a story like either way you swing it like it's because it's, yeah, it, it is crazy it's hard story. to prove you know it, it's something or it's not something or but it's an encounter that we only take to our books and add to it give us more knowledge on Bigfoot do you have any theories 
because I, I truly believe Bigfoot's out there. I, I don't think there's anything else. Like if people seen a bear, you know damn well what a bear looks like. Also, my biggest issue with that, I think it's possible that if someone saw something giant and furry in the woods, it could be a bear. But if someone saw like a bipedal ape creature moving through the woods, that's different than a bear. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like also like if you think about it, bears don't normally walk on two legs for prolonged periods of time. We've discussed this with Dogman. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like they will do that like as a means to an end to like get something or to climb it's just not in their nature there's no other creature that's as big as that and that matches the same description running around in north american wilderness there just isn't it doesn't make sense like (laughs) and a lot of these like encounters or prospectors and and you know they know what wildlife looks like they know what bears look like they're out there hunting all the time you know what animals are in like the northern america region you know your porkies yeah you know your porkies you know more than i do that they like salt and leather and (laughs) you know it's really cute (laughs) it's very interesting to think on that and like there's so much more to add to this cryptid and this is the only the beginning to end the show off and today being summer solstice the first day of summer we are excited to kick off drum roll Rocky Mountain Cryptids, Summer of the Sasquatch. A whole summer dedicated to our friendly or perhaps not so friendly forest giant. And what's even more exciting is we now have merch. Check it out on our website at www.rockymountaincryptids.com and join us for some fun this summer as we continue on. And remember, don't be shy. Hit us up if you have an encounter or thoughts or Anything, our email is at Rocky Mountain Cryptids pod at gmail.com, or you can find us on any social media platform. So I'm very excited about this launch and about the summer of the Squatch. <laughs> it's time to kick off the summer of the Squatch. Until next time. <laughs>